Book the Third, Part One of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Third, Part One. Distancy. Captain Distancy was a changed man. A hitherto well-repressed energy was giving him motion towards long-shunned consequences. His features were indeed the same as before, though had a physiognomist chosen to study them with the closeness of an astronomer scanning the universe, he would doubtless have discerned abundant novelty. In recent years, Distancy had been an easy, melancholy, unaspiring officer, enervated and depressed by a parental affection quite beyond his control for the graceless lad Dare. The obtrusive memento of a shadowy period in Distancy's youth, who threatened to be the curse of his old age. Throughout a long space he had persevered in his system of rigidly incarcerating within himself all instincts towards the opposite sex, with a resolution that would not have disgraced a much stronger man. By this habit, maintained with fair success, a chamber of his nature had been preserved intact during many later years, like the one solitary sealed-up cell occasionally retained by bees in a lobe of drained honeycomb. And thus, though he had irretrievably exhausted the relish of society, of ambition, of action and of his profession, the love force that he had kept immured alive was still a reproducible thing. The sight of Paula in her graceful performance, which the judicious dare had so carefully planned, led up to and heightened by subtle accessories, operated on Distancy's surprised soul with a promptness almost magical. On the evening of the selfsame day, having dined as usual, he retired to his rooms, where he found a hamper of wine awaiting him. It had been anonymously sent, and the account was paid. He smiled grimly, but no longer with heaviness. In this he instantly recognised the handiwork of Dare, who, having at last broken down the barrier which Distancy had erected round his heart for so many years, acted like a skilled strategist, and took swift measures to follow up the advantage so tardily gained. Captain Distancy knew himself conquered. He knew he should yield to Paula, had indeed yielded. But there was now in his solitude an hour or two of reaction. He did not drink from the bottle's scent. He went early to bed, and lay tossing thereon till far into the night, thinking over the collapse. His teetotalism had, with the lapse of years, unconsciously become the outward and visible sign to himself of his secret vows, and a return to its opposite, however mildly done, signified with ceremonious distinctness the formal acceptance of delectations long forsworn. But the exceeding freshness of his feeling for Paula, which by reason of its long arrest was that of a man far under thirty, and was a wonder to himself every instant, would not long brook weighing in balances. He wished suddenly to commit himself, to remove the quest of retreat out of the region of debate. The clock struck two, and the wish became determination. He arose, and wrapping himself in his dressing-gown, went to the next room, where he took from a shelf in the pantry several large bottles, which he carried to the window, till they stood on the sill a goodly row. There had been sufficient light in the room for him to do this without a candle. Now he softly opened the sash, 
and the radiance of a gibbous moon riding in the opposite sky flooded the apartment. It fell on the labels of the captain's bottles, revealing their contents to be simple aerated waters for drinking. Stancy looked out and listened. The guns that stood drawn up within the yard glistened in the moonlight reaching them from over the barrack wall. There was an occasional stamp of horses in the stables, also a measured tread of sentinels, one or more of the gates, one of the hospital, one between the wings, two at the magazine, and others further off. Recurring to his intention, he drew the corks of the mineral waters, and, inverting each bottle one by one over the window-sill, heard its contents dribble in a small stream onto the gravel below. He then opened the hamper which Dare had sent. Uncorking one of the bottles, he murmured, to Paula, and drank a glass of the ruby liquor. A man again after eighteen years, he said, shutting the sash and returning to his bedroom. The first overt result of his kindled interest in Miss Parr was his saying to his sister the day after the surreptitious sight of Paula, I'm sorry, Charlotte, for a word or two I said the other day. Well, I was rather disrespectful to your friend Miss Power. I don't think so. Were you? Yes, when we were walking in the wood I made a stupid joke about her. What does she know about me? Do you ever speak of me to her? Only in general terms. What general terms? You know well enough, William, of your idiosyncrasies and so on, that you are a bit of a woman-hater, or at least a confirmed bachelor, and have but little respect for your own family. I wish you had not told her that, said Destancy with dissatisfaction. But I thought you always liked women to know your principles, said Charlotte in injured tones, and would particularly like her to know them, living so near. Yes, yes, replied her brother hastily. Well, I ought to see her just to show her that I am not quite a brute. That would be very nice, she answered, putting her hands together in agreeable astonishment. It is just what I have wished, though I did not dream of suggesting it after what I have heard you say. I am going to stay with her again tomorrow, and I will let her know about this. Don't tell her anything plainly, for heaven's sake. I really want to see the interior of the castle. I have never entered its walls since my babyhood. He raised his eyes as he spoke to where the walls in question showed their ashlar faces over the trees. You might have gone over it at any time. No, yes. It is only recently that I have thought much of the place. I feel now that I should like to examine the old building thoroughly, since it was for so many generations associated with our fortunes, especially as most of the old furniture is still there. My sedulous avoidance hitherto of all relating to our family vicissitudes has been, I own, stupid conduct for an intelligent being. But impossible grapes are always sour, and I have unconsciously adopted radical notions to obliterate disappointed hereditary instincts. But these have a trick of re-establishing themselves as one gets older, and the castle and what it contains have a keen interest for me now. It contains Paula. Stancy's pulse, which had been beating languidly for many years, beat double of the sound of that name. I meant furniture and pictures for the moment, he said. But I don't mind extending the meaning to her, if you wish it. She is the rarest thing there. So you have said before. 
The castle and our family history have as much romantic interest for her as they have for you, Charlotte went on. She delights in visiting our tombs and effigies and ponders over them for hours. Indeed, said Destancy, allowing his surprise to hide the satisfaction which accompanied it. That should make us friendly. Does she see many people? Not many as yet, and she cannot have many staying there during the alterations. Ah, yes, the alterations. Didn't you say that she's had a London architect stopping there on that account? What was he? Old or young? He is a young man. He's been to our house. Don't you remember you met him there? What was his name? Mr. Somerset. Oh, that man. Yes, yes, I remember. Hello, Lottie. What? Your face is as red as a peony. Now I know a secret. Charlotte vainly endeavoured to hide her confusion. Very well, not a word. I won't say more, continued de Stancy good-humouredly except that he seems to be a very nice fellow. Stancy had turned the dialogue on to this little well-preserved secret of his sister's with sufficient outward lightness, but it had been done in instinctive concealment of the disquieting start with which he had recognised that Somerset, Dare's enemy, whom he had intercepted in placing Dare's portrait into the hands of the chief constable, was a man beloved by his sister Charlotte. This novel circumstance might lead to a curious complication. But he was to hear more. He may be very nice, replied Charlotte, with an effort, after this silence, but he is nothing to me more than a very good friend. There's no engagement or thought of one between you? Certainly there's not, said Charlotte, with brave emphasis. It is more likely to be between Paula and him than me and him. Stancy's bare military ears and closely cropped poll flushed hot. Miss Power and him? I don't mean to say there is, because Paula denies it. But I mean that he loves Paula. That I do know. Stancy was dumb. This item of news, which Dare had kept from him, not knowing how far Stancy's sense of honour might extend, was decidedly grave. Indeed, he was so greatly impressed with the fact that he could not help saying as much aloud. This is very serious. Why? she murmured tremblingly, for the first leaking out of her tender and sworn secret had disabled her quite. Because I love Paula too. What do you say, William? You? A woman you have never seen? I have seen her by accident. And now, my dear little sis, you will be my close ally, won't you? as I will be yours, as brother and sister should be. He placed his arm coaxingly round Charlotte's shoulder. Oh, William, how can I be? At last she stammered. Well, how can't you, I should say? We're both in the same ship. I love Paula. You love Mr. Somerset. It behoves both of us to see that this flirtation of theirs ends in nothing. I don't like you to put it like that. That I love him, it frightens me, murmured the girl, visibly agitated. I don't want to divide him from Paula. I couldn't, I wouldn't do anything to separate them. Believe me, Will, I could not. I'm sorry you love there also, though I should be glad if it happened in the natural course of events that she should come round to you. But I cannot do anything to part them and make Mr. Somerset suffer. It would be too wrong and blamable. Now, you silly Charlotte, that's just how you women fly off at a tangent. 
I mean nothing dishonourable in the least. Have I ever prompted you to do anything dishonourable? Fair fighting allies was all I thought of. Mr. Stancy breathed more freely. Yes, we will be that, of course. We are always like that, William. But I hope I can be your ally and be quite neutral. I would so much rather. Well, I suppose it will not be a breach of your precious neutrality if you get me invited to see the castle. Oh, no, she said brightly. I don't mind doing such a thing as that. Why not come with me tomorrow? I will say I am going to bring you. There will be no trouble at all. Stancy readily agreed. The effect upon him of the information now acquired was to intensify his ardour tenfold, the stimulus being due to a perception that Somerset, with a little more knowledge, would hold a card which could be played with disastrous effect against himself, his relationship to Dare. Its disclosure to a lady of such Puritan antecedents as Paula's will probably mean her immediate severance from himself as an unclean thing. Is Miss Powell a, a severe patist or precision, or is she a compromising lady? he asked abruptly. She is severe and uncompromising, if you mean in her judgment on morals, said Charlotte, not quite hearing. The remark was peculiarly apposite, and Stancy was silent. He spent some following hours in a close study of the castle history, which till now had unutterably bored him. More particularly did he dwell over documents and notes which referred to the pedigree of his own family. He wrote out the names of all, and there were many, who had been born within those domineering walls since their first erection. Of those among them who had been brought thither by marriage with the owner, and of stranger knights and gentlemen who had entered the castle by marriage with its mistress. He refreshed his memory on the strange loves and hates that had arisen in the course of the family history on memorable attacks, and the dates of the same, the most memorable among them being the occasion on which the party represented by Paula battered down the castle walls that she was now about to mend, and, as he hoped, return in their original intact shape to the family dispossessed by marriage with himself, its living representative. In Sir William's villa were small engravings after many of the portraits in the castle galleries, some of them hanging in the dining-room in plain oak and maple frames, and others preserved in portfolios. Stancy spent much of his time over these, and, in getting up the romances of their originals' lives from memoirs and other records, all of which stories were as great novelties to him as they could possibly be to any stranger. Most interesting to him was the life of an Edward de Stancy, who had lived just before the Civil Wars and to whom Captain de Stancy bore a very traceable likeness. His ancestor had a mole on his cheek, black and distinct as a fly in cream. And as in the case of the first Lord Amherst's wart, and Bennet, Earl of Arlington's nose-scar, the painter had faithfully reproduced the defect on canvas. It so happened that the captain had a mole, though not exactly on the same spot of his face, and this made the resemblance still greater. He took infinite trouble with his dress that day, showing an amount of anxiety on the matter which for him was quite abnormal. At last, when fully equipped, he set out with his sister to make the call proposed. Charlotte was rather unhappy at the sight of her brother's earnest attempt to make an impression on Paula, but she could say nothing against it, and they proceeded on their way. 
It was the darkest of November weather, and the days are so short that morning seems to join with evening without the intervention of noon. The sky was lined with low cloud, within whose dense substance tempests were slowly fermenting for the coming days. Even now, a windy turbulence troubled the half-naked boughs, and a lonely leaf would occasionally spin downwards to rejoin on the grass the scathed multitude of its comrades which had preceded it in its fall. The river by the pavilion, in the summer so clear and purling, now slid onwards brown and thick and silent, and enlarged to double size. End of Book the Third, Part One